I know everybody loves a good Cinderella story, don't we? That term, Cinderella story, it's used for a person or maybe a team who has a very lowly status to begin with, but then they overcome the odds to achieve something great, like Cinderella, for example. I think that's probably where we got it from, right? So uh, a lot of times Cinderella stories are used uh, concerning athletes or sports teams. If you all know me, you know I'm a football guy. So my favorite football Cinderella story, we didn't have many of those at Mississippi State when I was there, um, oddly enough. We were like, if Cinderella just stayed in the house, that was, that's, you know, that's kind of where the story kind of ended for us. Uh, favorite, my favorite is a guy named Kurt Warner. You have to go back to the early, mid-90s, late 90s maybe for this. But Kurt Warner played quarterback at a small college in Iowa. And he was good, but he wasn't good enough really for the NFL. He tried and tried, but he never could catch the attention of an NFL squad. But it was his dream. And so in an effort to kind of hold on to the dream, Kurt Warner caught on with an arena league football team called the Iowa Barnstormers, and he played quarterback for them in the mid-90s. Now, that's semi-pro football, so it doesn't pay very much. You you can't do that for a living. And so Kurt got a second job to help make ends meet at a local grocery store stocking shelves for $5.50 an hour. And he continued to work and to play, pursuing the dream, hoping for the best. Well, one day, he caught the eye of the St. Louis Rams. And they signed him to their practice squad. They gave him a chance. And then he worked his way up to the third string quarterback. That's the emergency quarterback, somebody who never plays, but at least dresses out and is on the team. Well, he worked his way through that initial season. And then his second season with the Rams, he actually earned a chance to start. They were going to make him the starting quarterback, a guy no one had ever heard of. But they were going to hand him the reins of an NFL team. And y'all, what happened next, 1999, I think, It really is the stuff of fairy tales. Kurt Warner comes out of nowhere, quite literally, and leads the St. Louis Rams to a Super Bowl championship. He throws for about a billion yards. He earns the NFL's MVP award. Sports Illustrated put Kurt on the cover about middle of the season that year with a big caption that says, who is this guy? The former grocery clerk was now all of a sudden the most celebrated football player on the planet. And now he has a bust in the NFL Hall of Fame. Uh, A Cinderella story, if there ever was one. Now, you have your own personal favorite, rags to riches story, I'm sure. But y'all, as we open up our Bibles today to Exodus chapter 3, we can safely say that the story of Moses tops them all. Moses is perhaps the great Cinderella story, if we want to call it that. And it helps us if we recall briefly something we looked at last week. We studied chapters 1 and 2 last week. Moses is introduced to us right at the beginning of chapter 2. Let me give just a quick little recap here of his life to this point. Moses, as a baby, was born under the king's edict in Egypt, the Pharaoh's edict, which said all Israelite baby boys must be drowned in the Nile. This was genocide, and Moses should have been killed. But his parents hid him away and kept him alive. Then, at about the three-month mark, when they couldn't hide him any longer, Moses' mother put him in a basket and floated him into the shallow parts of the Nile River, where he was discovered 
by one of Pharaoh's daughters. And Pharaoh's daughter, rather than killing him as the law demanded, she compassionately took him in. She's the one who named him Moses, and she raised him inside the king's household until the age of 40. Well, at the age of 40, we read Moses rises up one day, a true Israelite. He never bought into the whole Egyptian thing, even though that's how he was raised. He recognized that his kinsmen, his Israelite family, they were being mistreated. He saw an Egyptian beating one of his kinsmen, and he rises up and kills the Egyptian to protect his brother. Well, this becomes known, of course. Pharaoh now tries to kill Moses, and Moses is forced to flee far east to a place called Midian. And there in Midian, Moses lived for 40 more years. 40 years. And the Bible hardly gives us anything in terms of detail there, but we can just assume 40 years of obscurity out in the middle of nowhere, 40 years of isolation far away from his kinsmen, his people, 40 years of relative silence all around. Now, the typical Cinderella story goes like this. Somebody is in a low position, yes, but they earn their way through hard work and determination. They earn their chance to do something great. But that's not what's happening here in Exodus 3. Moses, if we're doing the math, he's now 80 years old. He's past his prime. The only thing apparently on his resume to this point is the killing of an Egyptian, which some consider murder. It's hard to know how you look at that, right? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And either way, it was half a lifetime ago. He's not out in Midian training for a comeback. He's out in Midian, seemingly spending the twilight years of his life as a shepherd in the backside of nowhere. Nothing's going to change for Moses. And nothing's going to change for God's people, Israel, who are enslaved in Egypt, unless God intervenes. Only if God steps in will things change. And we'll see how it unfolds today in Exodus 3. We're going to read the whole section here together. Uh, all up front, Exodus chapter 3, this is verses 1 through 10. You follow along with me, and we'll put these on the screen as well. Now, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite 
and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Where Moses begins in verse 1, and where we just ended in verse 10, are worlds apart, aren't they? And all of it, the difference between verses 1 and 10, all of it rests on the power and the purpose and the grace of God. This is God's activity here, front and center. And so let's zoom in just a little bit and hopefully get a better grasp of what's going on. Moses, it says, at the age of 80, is pasturing his father-in-law's flock. Father-in-law named Jephro. Get a little Beverly Hillbillies vibe here right from the beginning. And I'm I'm joking, but sincerely, we're out in the middle of nowhere, all right? He's in the middle of nowhere when he comes upon Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And y'all, that designation we just read, it's a little spoiler for us about what's to come. Because this is the same mountain where Moses will later receive the Ten Commandments, okay? And it's there at Horeb, which otherwise is not an, an, an impressive place, that Moses comes across a stunning sight, something that stops him dead in his tracks. It's a burning bush, which burns with a blazing fire, and yet the bush is not consumed. And so as Moses watches, expecting the bush to turn to ash and to die out, that's what bushes do. No, this one just keeps on blazing. Now, verse 2 tells us something that Moses has not yet discovered. This is the angel of the Lord appearing to him in the flame of fire. And so when Moses comes near, God speaks. And God speaks his name. He says, Moses. Moses says, here I am. And then God says, come no closer. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, there's a lot going on here, and it's almost like two sides of one story playing themselves out. Uh, Clearly, God is drawing Moses into an encounter with him. God wants Moses to come near And yet at the same time, he says, don't come too close. Take off your sandals. It's clear that God is coming to Moses in a very personal and and even intimate way. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Very personal, very intimate. And yet Moses cannot bear to look. Once he realizes that he's dealing with God, he hides his face away. Something very deep and very important is being communicated right here, right off the bat, something we need to understand not only about God, but about God's relationship to us. The Lord tells Moses, remove your sandals from your feet, for you are standing on holy ground. Now, that's not a statement about the nature or quality of the ground. God is declaring something about himself. In these verses, 
What makes this place holy is the manifest presence of God who appears to Moses in the flaming fire. Now, this is interesting, at least to me, it's interesting. Y'all, verse 5, when God says this is holy ground, this is the first time in the Bible the word holy is used. We see God's holiness on display in Genesis, of course, yes, but we don't get the word itself with specificity. This word holy or holiness shows up 600 times in your Bible, and yet we see it here first. And I think one of the reasons we see it here spelled out, H-O-L-Y, is that the holiness of God affects his relationship to us. And this is maybe the first time we see it with clarity. God is holy. Clearly, Moses is not. And something needs to be done about that. You know, if we, if we could define the term holiness, lots of great words we could use. Let me just try to say it like this. God's holiness means he is separate and distinct from everything else in existence. God is distinct from his creation. He's different from us. God is pure and he is undefiled. He is righteous and he is altogether perfect. And so when we see that God is holy, that his presence is holy, what we're being told here is that God is distinct and different. He's pure, he's perfect in a way that nothing else is. And that's why I think right here and also throughout the scripture, not just in Exodus, God's holiness is often depicted as fire. Fire is bright and hot and dangerous. Fire is untouchable. You don't treat fire casually. If you do, you get burned. Fire is not something we just touch and engage with, right? Now, when we say that, that holiness, in this case, is is, um, pictured as fire, we're not communicating something bad. As if God and his presence are bad, this is actually an expression of goodness, of fire being something that is bright and purifying and altogether um, unique, right? God's purity, his perfection, these are good things, not bad things. And so even though fire would uh, pose a threat to us in a very real way, we're not talking about something bad. We're talking about something of God that is pure and good. And that's the reason Moses hides his face. Not because God is bad but because he is good. Once Moses realizes once Moses realizes who he's dealing with, I am the God of your father, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what does Moses do? He hides his face away, and that's exactly what he should do. See, when human beings come into contact with God, there is an appropriate fear and trembling and a shrinking back that takes place. Y'all, that's good and right. We see that if you're familiar with Isaiah's story in Isaiah 6, when he encounters the glory of God in the temple, Isaiah says, woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, I'm a sinner. He did not casually embrace the holiness of God, he cowered away. When Peter, the apostle Peter, goes fishing with Jesus in Luke chapter 5, and they bring this miraculous catch of fish into the boat, Peter realizes who he's dealing with in Jesus. He falls down on his face right there in the boat and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Later on, we'll see this in Exodus. The people of Israel beg Moses, You go and intercede for us. You talk to God 
for us, Moses, because if God should speak to us directly, we will die. And we have to understand, this fear and trembling, which is right and good, is not because God is angry and bad. The fear and trembling comes because God is so good, so pure and perfect, that sinners simply cannot bear His presence. The problem is not with God, it's with us. And so this is the unfortunate thing we don't like to talk about, we don't want to admit, but the Scripture simply will not let it go. And experience proves it. We human beings, we are sinful, we are profane, we are the ones who are impure. And so when we come into contact with a holy God, that's meant to bring terror to our hearts. There's a sense in which we do not belong in the presence of pure holiness. And therefore, Moses hides his face just as he should. Y'all, it would serve us well to recognize this. Right here today, God is every bit as holy as he ever was. We cannot treat God. It's a grave mistake if we ever treat God as common or ordinary or something like us. He is not. He is holy. Well, that poses an obvious problem, doesn't it? If God is holy and we are not, that would exclude or even destroy all potential for relationship. How can God ever draw us near or accept us or even tolerate us if a holy God cannot accept impurity? But look at what God does here, even in Exodus chapter 3. He says to Moses, the first thing he says, Moses, hold back, don't come too close. Take off your sandals. Now, what's that? Have you ever wondered what that's all about? Does God have something against shoes? Is there, is there, what's the rationale here? As if Moses taking off his sandals, does that make him holier than he was five seconds ago with his sandals on? Surely not. What's God doing here when he says, Moses, take your shoes off? I think this is God's very simple way of making provision for Moses to stand in the divine presence. And this is very much in keeping with God and how God works throughout the Bible, throughout history. We cannot stand before God on our own merits. We are impure and sinful in the presence of pure holiness. So only if God provides a way can it be done. And all throughout the Bible, including right here in Exodus 3, God creates a gracious provision by which he is able to accept us and bring us close. And so for Moses, it's alarmingly simple. Take off your shoes. Moses wasn't holier barefoot than he was with shoes on. My sense of this is simply an elementary act of obedience and worship. Moses, I'm going to allow you in Take off your shoes and come close. So what about us? I mean, how does this apply to us right here and right now? We're, we, don't, you know, we don't have a no-shoes policy here at Harvest. Make things a little more interesting, perhaps. A little stinkier in here if we did. But y'all, now this is a question we have to face and we have to answer. Every single one of us, you have to know the answer to this question. How can a holy God truly accept and even embrace a sinner like me? How can God embrace unholy people? 
The answer is only found if God intervenes, if God brings to us a gracious provision. And that's what he's done. That's the banner that we hang and proudly, gladly, gratefully stand under week after week that God has made provision for us to draw near. He has sent his Son to us and for us. This is the message of the gospel, the good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been graciously put forth as our substitute. He's taken our place. Jesus on the cross made full and final sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And there on that cross, He also granted to us the righteousness that God's righteousness requires. Now let me say that again. Jesus has made full and final sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins by the giving of His own life and the shedding of His own blood. He laid Himself down for you that you might be forgiven. All of our unholiness has been taken away. And yet we haven't just been brought back to zero. We've been granted righteousness in place of sin and condemnation. Jesus has given us His own perfect record so that the righteousness that God requires in all of His holiness is achieved for us and given to us as a gift. And Jesus alone is qualified to do this because He is God. Jesus is the Holy One who lived among us and died for us and rose again. So y'all, what we receive by faith, when we trust in the Lord Jesus, we don't get coexistence with God, where God simply allows us to get close, but not too close, remember, He's holy. Stay back, keep your distance. Y'all, I I hope you know that Jesus Christ did not halfway die for a halfway salvation. We don't get close. We would take that, by the way. Closeness is better than alienation. But that's not what the gospel says. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, because our sin has been canceled by his death, because our righteousness now is found in him, we receive adoption. Meaning God brings us all the way in and makes us his dear children. In Jesus Christ, we don't find a Savior who simply makes a way for God to tolerate. No, He redeems us and He makes us His own because He is filled with loving kindness and grace for those who could never save themselves. We trust and we receive something we could never earn. We don't produce our own holiness. We receive the good fruit of His. Now, y'all, let me go off script here for just a second, okay? Um, There's a prevailing thought. If you remember verse 2 we read a moment ago, the angel of the Lord appears in the flaming fire, and then God speaks from the fire. There's a, a prevailing thought among scholars that the angel of the Lord, right there, is actually Jesus. Jesus coming in a pre incarnate way, ministering there to Moses. We don't have time to go into all the references, but throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appears who is clearly distinct from God in some sense, and yet acts as God, speaks as God, just as he does here. And it's believed that this perhaps is Jesus coming to Moses, speaking to Moses. Um, If that's true, 
then it makes sense, of course, that Moses could enter into the holy presence of God, the flaming fire of holiness. And yet Moses is not consumed. He's not destroyed. Because a gracious provision has been made. Just as it is for us. How can God remove our sin without putting us to death? By putting our sin on his son Jesus and making a way to bring us in. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God for those who can't save themselves, for Moses and for me and for you. And we see this heart as it continues to bear itself out. Look at what Moses is told beginning in verse 7. God gets to the point of his drawing Moses in. He says, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters or slave masters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Therefore, furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, if you were with us last week, we looked at chapter 2. At the very end, this is the same theme here that we saw at the end of chapter 2. Only now, it's not coming from the pen of Moses. It's coming from the mouth of God himself. God speaks. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have given heed. I am aware, I have come down. I will deliver them from the land of oppression and bring them into a land of abundance. That is the land of promise. You know, to me at least, I see in, in the words of God here, it's a carryover of the same theme we've been seeing all throughout this text this morning. Both holiness and mercy held together in perfect harmony. God in His holiness is offended by sin, especially in this case, the sin of injustice and oppression. These things that the Egyptians are perpetrating uh, onto the Israelites, offend, this offends God, and God, because He is holy, is going to bring judgment. Their sin will not go unpunished. So God is holy. And at the same time, we also see in God an amazing tenderness and mercy, don't we? Right here, more than once in this little section, God refers to Israel as my people. My people. How was it that Israel was God's people? You know, it's interesting, if we can, we're going to continue to read through Exodus, we will be shocked. Even if you've read it before, you're going to be shocked at how bad Israel gets. They are not holy. They never were. They were never pure and perfect, and somehow they earned God's notice, his eye and his deliverance. They were sinners through and through. It becomes very clear the moment they get out of Egypt. And so how is it that they are God's people? Well, we get a little insight into this. It comes several times in the Bible, but in Deuteronomy 10, God makes a statement as to why Israel is my people it says that God set his heart on them to love them. 
God delighted to love them. It does not say they were so lovable, God couldn't help himself. It says God delighted to love them. Who's the actor in that scenario? It's not Israel. Israel is poor and helpless and sinful, but God delighted to love them. And therefore they were his people, and he would deliver them. That is something about the heart of God I hope we never miss. He delights to love us. And so for reasons we can't perceive, now here's where it gets, I mean, just, this is, it's funny, perhaps. Who is God going to send to take on this great mission, this insurmountable task? Moses. And it's really, it's, it's, there's humor, I think, sometimes in the scripture that we might not perceive. God is choosing and calling and commissioning Moses to be the one who's going to go back to Egypt and bring the people of Israel out. Of all the people in the world who couldn't fathom this calling, Moses is number one on the list. Moses doesn't say, let's go! You know, he's, he's not excited. He's confused. Moses immediately, we'll see it next week, but immediately Moses starts trying to talk God out of it. In chapter 4, he starts going through a laundry list of excuses as to why he can't do this, and God's got the wrong guy. But y'all, this is how God operates. And this is, again, another thing that we see in the Lord throughout all the Bible that, that, that absolutely turns us around. It's backward from everything we might expect. See, our favored version of the Cinderella story, remember, is that you start low, but you earn your way back up because this is America, and if you work hard enough, you can do it. You can be great. That's not the message of the Scripture. It's not the message Moses received. We might expect for God at this point to come to Moses and say, Moses, I've been watching you, and I've seen your courage and your strength and your faithfulness, and man, I know it's been a long journey, but it's time to make the jump, all right? You've earned your way, your first string now. All right, let's do this. That's what we might expect. That's what we might like, perhaps, for things to work, but that's not how the Bible, that's not how God operates, what we see in Moses is something far different, something opposite that. Moses is, y'all beg, I beg your pardon, but Moses is old and washed up. He's alone in the wilderness. He's far from his people. We don't get much indication that he really cares about the plight of his people. We know he does, but there's no indication that he's chomping at the bit to go do something about it. If there's any memory of Moses still remaining back in Israel, it's only a faint glimmer at best. It's been 40 years since he set foot in Egypt. Even if Moses was in his prime at one point in his life, he's now 40 years past it. Why would God choose a man like this for such an impossible feat? And if you want to personalize it, you could ask that question about you or me. Why would God choose any of us to do anything of importance if he knows what I really am? Y'all, I can give at least one answer to this question as to why God would choose a person like Moses or for that matter, a person like you or me. It's because God is glorified in making his power known in weakness. God is glorified in making his power known in weakness. God delights to be gracious to those who have nothing to show for themselves. God loves to breathe life into what is otherwise dead. He's doing it all the time. He's doing it perhaps in this room right now. Breathing life where there is only death. Giving hope where there is otherwise condemnation. Because that's who he is. 
See, y'all, Exodus, on one hand, we could say Exodus is a story about a nation of people crushed under the weight of oppression, sinking into despair, a people in need of rescue. That's true. We could also say Exodus is a story about a man named Moses who was once far off with nothing to show for himself, but God still had a plan for his life. Sure, that's true. But y'all, much more than all of that, Exodus is about a God who is holy and good, who is both powerful and merciful, a God who comes down to deliver his people because he has delighted to love them. That was not the story of Israel only. That is our story too, by faith in Jesus Christ. Y'all here as we close, I want to invite anyone, perhaps if you have a mind and a heart to respond, if you'd like to pray and be prayed over, if you'd like to talk about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be forgiven of sin and saved by grace. We'd love to talk with you. That's, that's why we're here. Uh, I'd, I'd ask uh, here in just the next couple of moments, during the prayer, during the song, if you want to step to the back of the room there and take Moses, uh, not Moses, Moses is, is in here. Um, take uh, Aaron, Aaron's in here too, golly. Evan, Evan, that's not a Bible name as far as I know. Neither is Kyle. We're safe. Take Aaron, take uh, uh, Evan by the hand, man. Let them talk with you, pray with you here in a moment if you'd like. Step out of the room and talk. Um, If God should lead you to respond. But here's y'all, here's the truth. Here's the bottom line. Just like Moses, it's true for us. We bring nothing to commend ourselves to God. There's nothing at all that God needs from us, requires from us, Lift a thousand-pound rock over your head, Moses. Prove you can do it. No. No. I'll send you. And next week we'll see. I'll be with you. I'll make all provision. And he does it for us through the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. May we receive him and trust him with all our hearts as we pray. Father, thank you for your grace this morning. And I pray that we would respond, even if we don't get up and, and... talk to a pastor this morning. Lord, that you would bring a true, sincere, and very deep response to our hearts. Lord, as to who you are. And that, Lord, our thoughts of you, our our perception of you would be great and big and marvelous because you are holy. Lord, you're not like us. You're not small. You're not uh, flawed. You're not given to the winds of change. Lord, you are eternal. You are altogether pure and perfect and righteous forever. And I pray, Lord, that we would have a big view of you and recognize, Lord, our smallness, our need before you. And I pray, Lord, that we would see with that that you don't treat us as small, as unloved, as forgotten or cast out. That, Lord, in our unholiness, in our sin, in our impurity, Father, you make a way. You you grant your provision in a far greater way than we see in Exodus 3, Lord. It's not about any act of worship that, that keeps us alive, keeps us in your presence, Lord. It's the very Son of God, Jesus, who has given his life to bring us all the way in as a gift of grace. Lord, 
help us to, to fathom, to, to understand even just a little bit how greatly loved we really are, how deeply cherished we must be if you would give us your grace like this in Jesus Christ, if you would make us your own children freely through giving your son for us. And Lord, if these things are true, if you are holy and altogether perfect, and if you have graced us, Lord, with forgiveness and life and brought us near, then Lord, there's nothing you cannot do in us and through us. Father, Moses was ill-equipped, but you were with him. And I pray, Father, that if, if, you would, if you would call us to anything for your glory, that we would not settle for excuses, that we would not shrink away any longer, but we would step forward. Here I am. Send me. Whatever you desire, Father, to do with us and through us and in us, Lord, let us be glad recipients. Father, you be glorified in our lives. As we sit in this room and here in a moment as we exit these doors, you be glorified. The God who saves and who now calls us to a life of worship and love and devotion and obedience. Thank you, Father, that you have loved us this much to make us your own and, Lord, to use us for your glory, to, to reveal your power in weak people so that it might be shown that it's you and not us. We ask for these things, and we thank you for them. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.